Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Culturally Responsive Practice. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com. She has no non-financial disclosures. AC Goldberg is the founder and CEO of Transplaining and instructor of the Credit Institute. He receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. He is a member of the Trans Voice Initiative, a topic expert for the informed speech, and a member of the 2022 ASHA Convention Planning Committee. And now, here's a little bit about our guest. AC Goldberg, PhD, CCC, SLP, is an intersex transgender speech-language pathologist licensed in the U.S. and Canada. Practicing for 17 years, AC creates a safe and affirming clinical space for people of all neurotypes, races, backgrounds, genders, ages, religions, ethnicities, and abilities. Currently a school clinician, AC also has a private gender-affirming voice practice and is an award-winning public speaker. AC is ASHA certified, SAC affiliated, and a member of the World Professional Organization for Transgender Health. He offers cultural responsiveness training and consulting services through his agency, Transplaining. Welcome, AC. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about cultural responsiveness. Thank you so much for having me, Mary Beth. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am so excited. We met at ASHA and you were so wonderful to agree to meet us on this short turnaround. So thank you for being here. And as we dive into this episode, can you share with us your journey and experience that led you to your clinical practice and expert in the sphere that you are in? 
Sure. Without going into too many details, I have just had some pretty terrible clinical experiences. You know, just as a a patient in various, you know, I have a physical disability, so I go to a lot of doctors and specialists. I've had a lot of people just not understand my disability because they somehow attribute elements of it to my gender. So this is about just me as a person having clinical experiences, and I'll get into the SLP thing in a minute. But in terms of I have EDS, which is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and I could have probably been diagnosed when I was in my teens, but instead, because my gender didn't align with what doctors were were seeing, uh, my legal name was something different, my you know appearance, I didn't have quite as much facial hair, my appearance was different, and doctors just... They took one look at me and all they could see was, well, this person doesn't conform to my idea of gender. So there's no way that their description of their symptoms is going to be accurate. And they're definitely, you know, this person is not telling, you know, the truth or I can't wrap my head around it. You know, so I got a lot of things like when I was tearing cartilage in my shoulders by doing absolutely nothing, I got a lot of, you know, well, you must be lifting too hard. And if anyone knows anything about me, I don't lift anything. I just, you know, uh, maybe a knife to dice my onions, but, um, you know, and my children who are quite heavy, but back, I mean, I'm not, I'm not someone who's going to be lifting. They all assumed I was trying to be really manly. You know, I was trying too hard to be manly. So I was, tearing all my ligaments. I mean, I would say things like I opened my window and it was stuck and I tore my bicep tendon. They were being like, really, is that really how it happened? And nobody kind of took me seriously in terms of having like a major physical disability. And this didn't just happen with that. It happened across specialists. At one point I had my disability manifest a lot in my spine. I had this cervical spine injury that required surgery eventually, but, um, I had dysphagia and I went and I, I kept saying, you know, I can't stop coughing after I'm eating. This is before I went to school to become an SLP, but um, I went and I described these symptoms to multiple specialists and they attributed it to me trying to make my voice sound deeper when I was not even engaged in any gender what? voice modification. And it was so alarming to me that nobody was taking any of my physical symptoms seriously that it led me to really not take care of my body. And, you know, I'm probably far more physically disabled today than I would have been if anyone in the beginning had said, oh, you know, you have this disability, you really like, these are things that you shouldn't be doing. Like I shouldn't have hiked the Appalachian Trail. I shouldn't have been a runner. I shouldn't have done any of that stuff. But instead, I was led to believe, you know, you're just trying to be someone that you're not. And, you know, it was very hard to hear that from medical providers and very, you know, demeaning. And that doesn't even have to do with gender, which was a whole separate journey of having to try and convince people that I am who I say I am in order to access the right types of medications and surgeries and you know, I could tell you all about how I found out that I'm intersex, but I'm not going to get into that because I want to talk about, well, I can get into that in a minute, but I want to talk about as an SLP, why I feel this work is so important. And, you know, it's because I was really severely mistreated when I first started in the field. I Really? Yes. My supervisor I started out at a hospital. My supervisor made me sign a bathroom log for a single stall. Anyone could use a bathroom. 
And I wound up leaving that job because I felt so uncomfortable and I tried to complain about it, but I didn't want to tell my supervisor, supervisor that I was trans and that's why it was happening. And I just, it was all because my legal name didn't match what people were seeing. And when I tried to explain it, they were just like, I don't agree with that lifestyle without kind of realizing that there's nothing different about me. You know, I live in a three bedroom home in a suburb in Boston. I have two kids and a cat. I mean, I'm very kind of, you know, it seems like I fit everyone's sort of standard notion of how someone should be in society. And I don't love that that exists. And I probably felt pressured into doing it, to be honest. But there's nothing different about how I live my life than anyone else. And I think that back when I was first starting out, people really just thought that, you know, this was such a pathology that I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be allowed to be in the workplace exhibiting this sort of pathology. My supervisor would very regularly tell parents of young children who I was going to work with and then tell them that their kids shouldn't be alone in a room with me. I then left that job and went to a school district where I was encouraged by my principal and immediate supervisors to come out during a like very big out at school movement. And two days later, I was then given a termination notice because a parent took issue. And, you know, that was that. It was very hard when I was a young SLP. I From there, I moved into a situation where my boss was sexually harassing me and touching me. And my complaint wasn't taken seriously because what was I doing looking like how I was looking and being who I was being, you know, at work? Like, wasn't that the type of attention I was looking for? So I really have had a lot of experiences that lead me into this space that make me want to make things better for everyone. And speech language pathologists work with transgender people, whether they work in the voice realm or not. Everyone's like, oh, that's a voice thing. Not a voice thing. You can meet a trans person anywhere. You could meet a trans person with aphasia. You could meet a trans kid who is on your caseload. You could meet a trans colleague. You can meet, meet us anywhere. And it's really important to learn how to interact with us. And speech language pathologists are not given any specific direct training in the matter unless they're lucky enough to go to a school where voice is covered in enough in enough depth where they're given direct instruction on how to help someone with gender voice modification and how to work in a culturally responsive manner with a person who's seeking those types of services. We just don't have any direct instruction and we need it. Well, thank you for being here with us today to share it with all of us who never had any direct training in this. And before we talk a little bit more, I do want to say I'm sorry that those things happened to you. I did not, in asking that question, I, I did not expect that answer. And I'm just really sorry that things were the way they were. And you, by sharing with that, I think you're inspiring a lot of people to seek the changes that are needed. So, so thank, thank you. you for that. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot to come on these platforms and be vulnerable, but I think that people need to understand that this is actually still happening. You know, I do, I have a project manager um, who is this absolutely wonderful graduate student um, who had an experience in the field with a clinical supervisor who was very uncomfortable with their pronouns and didn't want them to use their pronouns with families and was saying, you know, well, you're making this about you. And they were saying, well, no, this is, 
it's about everyone. <laughs> and, you know, I can be called the pronouns I want to be called, just like I can be called the name I want to be called. You know, everyone should be learning someone's name and pronouns and not assuming anyone's pronouns because really anyone can look any way and use any pronouns. And you can't assume someone's gender by looking at them. And you certainly can't assume someone's pronouns just by knowing someone's gender because anyone can use any pronoun that they please. And I think that, you know, speech pathologists feel like they have a lot of opinions about it because they feel like they own language, which is, you know, a whole other can of worms that we could open. But, you know, language is evolving. And that is, I think, the most absolutely fascinating and beautiful things about the world in which we exist in language is that Language evolves alongside culture and medical advances and all of these things, these words that we never thought that we would be using years ago. I mean, you know, you're having a you're having a staycation because everyone's being a COVID idiot. These are things that nobody would have said, you know, however many years ago. And we're adding new words to our vocabulary all the time. So when people refuse to add them, learn them, or use them because they're about a certain group of people, that's not rooted in anything about language. It's just rooted in, you know, either willful ignorance or bigotry, depending on, you know, how those are maybe two sides of the same coin. And, you know, it's unacceptable that we work in a language field and our language is always evolving and people refuse to evolve their language with regard to certain topics. So what do you say to people who have a problem with using they from a grammar perspective for a singular person? You know, I would say to them, you do it anyway. Who left their water bottle in here? Nobody would ever say who left his or her water, bo water bottle in here. You do it anyway when you're talking about an a specific person. You can definitely do it when you're talking about a specific person. To clarify, I just used a specific and then a specific. Um, <laughs> but I think that I think that that was uneasily enough understood. Um, but if you can use it for someone whose identity is unknown, you can use it for someone whose identity is known. It's the same purpose. It serves the same function. A pronoun is just, as we all know, replacing someone's name. There's no confusion that will arise if someone uses they them pronouns for one known person as opposed to one unknown person nobody's going to think suddenly mary beth is a group okay you know what okay. i mean like do you mind if i use they them pronouns when i talk about you for a second not at all okay i was on this really cool podcast the other day um, with mary beth hines called keys for slps and they asked me all sorts of questions and then i sort of spoke over them because that's just what i do i got in the groove and they were asking questions nobody's gonna be like mary beth is that one person or nine people mm -hmm. i mean they're not i used your name i used a pronoun it doesn't seem confusing okay Okay. Does it seem confusing to you? No, it doesn't com seem confusing to me. But in talking about this topic, I have had people raise that objection. Yeah. I mean, those are people who have never done it out loud and realized it's not confusing. They've mm -hmm. also never thought about the a specific person situation that happens all the time. That's a very good point. Yeah, it happens all the time, every day. I left their book here. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, yes. you don't, it, it's people leave things behind all. That's my favorite example because people leave things behind all the time. You know, someone lost their wallet, someone dropped their keys, someone's parked in the no parking zone. I mean, 
there are so many a specific instances in which you, you use the singular they all day every day mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. can it doesn't matter if it yep. switches to a specific person it serves the same function okay thank you for that clarification that is very helpful and i have another question for you along those same lines so for someone who is trying to use the pronouns that a person has requested to be used for them. So let's say the person wants to be, maybe they formerly used she, her, and now they want to use he, him. And you've known the person for a long time, or maybe just by looking at the person, you accidentally think of them as something else. What is appropriate in that situation when you have made a mistake, is it appropriate to address it, to gloss over it, to ask forgiveness? What What is the appropriate response by the person who has made the mistake? This is a really great question. Thank you for asking it. The thing that most of us want, especially in a clinical interaction, but you know, with our with our friends and family, it it also is desired that somebody just quickly corrects themselves to show that they know how to do it, that they understand that they did something that they they shouldn't have, and then moves on with the conversation. Sometimes there can be like a little like, I'm sorry, like a, a little quick, I'm sorry, but you don't want to try and have the conversation of, you know, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm trying so hard. I'm so sorry to put the person, the trans person in a situation where they have to say like, oh, well, that's okay. Because, you know, the whole interaction is making us uncomfortable to begin with. We want it to be over fast. You actually had a beautiful example of this uh, (laughs) by mistake, right? As we were setting up, but let's, I'm going to reenact this and I'm going to misgender you. I'm going to call you he instead of she, and I'm going to move on. So I was on this podcast with Mary Beth and he asked me, she asked me all these questions and they were really interesting. And I liked listening to her perspective, just moving on. You know, mm-hmm. maybe there's a glimpse of acknowledgement between us, but me just showing you that I do know your pronoun, that I am trying, that I can put it into context. If I over apologized and was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mary Beth, she, 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 that makes everyone very uncomfortable. We just want it to be over. We want to know you're trying. So show us by using the correct pronoun, like in the next sentence that comes out of your mouth. And then just, you know, move on. It makes it feel a lot more comfortable for us that way. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because I have made that mistake. This is new to me. This is not something that was on my radar. I would say, you know, five, 10 years ago, it certainly was not. I think the first time I I really realized it was when I brought my older, oldest son. I have five kids, but the oldest one to college and Mm. walked into the dorm and saw the pictures of the RAs with all the pronouns. That was probably not the first time, but the first time I really saw it in used across the board like that. So everyone had their pronouns, not just someone who had changed the pronouns. And that's the way to do it. You understand the logic behind that, right? Yes. Yeah. I do now. And um, I guess I guess showing our vulnerability is good on both sides, not sides, but for, you know, for both people on this uh, Zoom, because I didn't always understand it. And that's why I wanted to have you come on, because I think there are a lot of people like me who don't understand everything and they're they can really improve by understanding. 
oh, seeking sure. to understand. And, and everyone has to start somewhere. You know, this is why I have the platform that I have. Uh, so I have um, two different platforms. One is the, one is Transplaining, which you can find me on Instagram at Transplaining. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Credits Institute. So Transplaining, the Instagram itself is, is educational, um, you know, and it has little, you know, tips and the common microaggressions experienced by, you know, trans people and, you know, facts about trans people and, you know, current events that relate to us and our rights that are, you know, constantly under debate, you know, and all of sort of the political stress we go through. And also, you know, the Instagram in itself is is educational, but I also have, you know, a platform where I, I give training specific to, you know, culturally responsive practices with working with trans and gender non-conforming patients, clients, and students, you know, really across any setting, you know, and I have modules with gender and early childhood education and creating culturally responsive environment for gender voice modification, just making sure that people understand, you know, that a trans person can exist anywhere. You know, if you're an SLP, you're not only going to come across a trans person if you work in voice. That's a common misconception. You know, you could have, you know, a trans person with a TBI. You could have a trans person who stutters. You could have a, you know, a trans student on your caseload if you're a school SLP. You could have a trans colleague anywhere. And, you know, it's very important that you understand how to, you know, interact respectfully, not ask, you know, invasive questions. A lot of people, if it's new on their radar, they want to know more, which is totally legit. And I understand. But asking a trans person sort of at work, you know, or that, you know, those invasive questions, it can make them really uncomfortable and make them feel triggered. And that's why educational platforms like mine exist so that people can get all their information about trans people, about, you know, understanding what sort of the trans experiences is like, because not everyone's trans experience is exactly the same. And your friends don't owe you their life story and your clients certainly don't. And it's uncomfortable. You know, a lot of providers have asked me things that are so clinically irrelevant, you know, and I'll give you an example. I was at a dermatologist getting, I I wish the audience could see me, but they could hear me. I was getting this looked at Mary. (laughs) Oh, Um, no. <laughs> and and a dermatologist asked me about bottom surgery. And I was like, what is happening here? I'm here for a mole like in my scalp. That was very uncomfortable. And things like that just happen to us because people are curious. And that's why I have this platform. But I also use the platform because people are interested to uplift other people's perspectives and cultural responsiveness. You know, so I do have a collection of lectures on transplaining that I am migrating over to this new course that I'm offering called CREDIT, which stands for Culturally Responsive Education, Diversity, and Inclusion Training. And this is a a long course. It's a 12-week course that anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you listen before January 13th, you can get $1,000 off the price. And I'm going to drop the code in the chat box for you all. And that is the, for college credit, right? It's for university credit. Okay, so, yeah. you know, the you can get um, 7.35 ASHA CEUs, which gets you the ACE Award in uh, Cultural and Linguistic Diversity, not just about trans things. Um, this is intersectional cultural responsiveness. You know, it's about racism. It is about indigenous issues. It is about neurodiversity. It is about, it is about intersectionality. And each lecture, each module is taught by someone whose lived experience brings to the table their perspective. And what this does is it really fully engages the people who are learning in culturally responsive practices because you're learning from firsthand experience 
you're listening to a recorded lecture, and then you're coming live to a discussion that you've already submitted your questions for. So it's a guided discussion where the person who's given the lecture comes on and reads everyone's questions, has read the discussion board, and is able to guide everyone through a conversation about their own topic, their lived experience, their scientific expertise, because usually that's all our research areas too. And, you know, really engage in a conversation and meet the audience where they are. Um, and, and that's for three graduate credits and, you know, 80 million ASHA CEUs. I'm just kidding. 7.35, which is a big number. Um, but the ACE award is a really, you know, I, <laughs> it's a really motivating thing. And I think it's really important that if anyone wants to take a deeper dive that, you know, that's accessible. I think that it's also really important if you can't afford something like that, but you are interested in doing this learning. I do have it for CMH and non-graduate credits on the transplaining um, platform. And I can give you all my websites later, um, but that one is transplaining.info and you can find that at courses.transplaining.info. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us and putting that in the chat and making that available to people who want to learn more. So let's let's define cultural responsiveness. Let's. Um, so cultural <laughs> responsiveness is, you know, simply being able to understand and interact with people from both your own and other cultures um, in a respectful manner that takes into account their lived experience. And it's sort of a practice that consistently reminds you that number one, you always have to be engaging about in learning because everyone's lived experience is different. And number two, you have a lot of biases and you have to deal with them. You have to deal with the fact that every person you meet, you're going to probably have prejudgments about because that's where humans and, you know, it's, it's okay. And I know a lot of people feel a lot of shame around like having to engage in this learning or like, you know, Ooh, you know, should I really do it? Like, what's it going to make me feel like if you do it with me, I'll make you feel very comfortable because you're going to watch me confront my biases and be like, wow, I really never knew how horrendously racist that was or you know how offensive that was and you know moving forward i'm not going to do that anymore and it's just you know it's very important for people to understand that you know all of us who train and teach in this realm also have had to engage in this learning about other people so we all understand where everyone is starting because none of us start by you know knowing everything Mm-hmm. That would be like super cool. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's uh, if we started knowing everything, there wouldn't be any excitement in learning, right? You know that's true, but it would be so interesting just for one day to know everything and then... to know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe not. Maybe that would be really scary. I have no idea. Okay, so cultural responsiveness, understanding other cultures, understanding your own biases, and constantly being aware of those and trying to understand other people. So as SLPs, you've touched on this a little bit, but why is this so important for SLPs to to know, understand, and practice? When you think about the assumptions that you might make as an SLP about what someone needs, take for instance... I mean, I could give you a billion examples, but I am going to give you an example about voice because I think that that's something that I can speak of from my own lived experience, but I will give you other examples. Take, for example, trans voice. 
you've got a, a client on your caseload, you work at an outpatient clinic, you've never seen someone for gender affirming voice, you know, services before, but you've done your reading and you've, you've taken a course, but you go into the session with someone who you don't understand that terms like feminine and masculine, when you're describing voice or their desired voice might be, you know, might miss the mark with them because their gender is non-binary. And when you say like, okay, well, you know, in order to achieve what you're trying to, to do with your voice, you're going to want to bring, you know, I don't remember how I started this sentence, but, you know, if, if someone were to say, oh, you know, in order to make, to feminize your voice, what we're going to have to do is, you know, I think your pitch is fine, but we're going to want to bring your resonance more forward. We're going to want to work on your paralinguistics so that you have that more feminine presentation. You don't realize that the person who you're speaking to, that their gender is non-binary and that the term feminize to them is a misnomer because they're not trying to be more feminine. They're trying to be their gender. Well, they are their gender. They're trying to be perceived as someone of their gender and not, you know, misgendered by people misunderstanding them and sort of attributing their gender to the sex that they were assigned at birth because that's how they're being read. So, you know, I think that it's very important for SLPs to understand that, like, if you are seeing a non-binary person for, you know, um, for any sort of gender affirming voice modification, that you don't sort of say things like masculinization and feminization, because those are terms that there's no like non-binaryization and non-binary doesn't necessarily mean neutral and, you know, doesn't necessarily mean androgynous. Um, you know, someone whose gender is non-binary might have any types of voice goals. They might have voice goals that you would attribute to possibly someone who's transmasculine, possibly someone who's transfeminine, possibly, you know, really anything because everyone's voice goals, I've seen tons of voice clients. They're all really, really different. And, you know, understanding that certain terms in certain situations feel microaggressive to your client. And a microaggression is just like a brief environmental um, or behavioral indignity that's sort of placed upon you by another person that doesn't understand where you're coming from and doesn't, you know, doesn't understand your lived experience. It might feel microaggressive. And that sort of breaks down that clinical relationship that you're developing with that person. If they have to explain to you like, oh, you know, masculinization just doesn't sit right with me. Like I'm non-binary and I don't want to sound more masculine. I want to sound like myself, you know, and those are the types of things that you have to kind of engage in the learning in order to know and understand. I mean, there's so much more than that, you know, and then if you think about taking just like another example, if you think about, let's say a 12 year old black boy with syntax goals without taking this kid's dialect into consideration. You know, we aren't, our job is not to change people's dialect. It's to give them, you know, if you, if I'm talking about a 12 year old, I'm probably talking about a school student. So, you know, okay. if, if I'm talking about like a middle schooler with syntax schools, my job as an SLP is not to change this, this kid's dialect. It's not to, you know, teach him how to speak English more like me. It is to give him access to the curriculum in the school is to make sure that he has access to social interactions. And if we're talking about things like, you know, accurate verb conjugation, and we're not taking things like someone's dialect into consideration, then we're basically just teaching conformity 
And it's very similar if you think about something like neurotype and paralinguistic goals. And I am very guilty of this. And I went back and made amends with these students that are now high schoolers and college students when, you know, back when there were goals about about eye contact. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking like 10 years ago, I didn't know better. And I'm so grateful to my autistic friends and to my autistic, you know, clients for telling me like, I can't do this and you shouldn't do this because, you know, it was harming them. And I did not set out to harm anyone when I, I entered this career. And I am so grateful that I've learned from those mistakes and that I wouldn't do those things to harm anyone. Because if you think about those types of goals, things like syntax, eye contact, you have to think about who is this goal for? Mm-hmm. Does it benefit the client or does it benefit the people around them by making the client seem like they blend in more? And if the answer is the second, then that's not the right motivation to work on a goal. I mean, everything has to be client-centered, not environmentally or you know pressure-centered. You know, We really have to sort of build from the client out and think about their intersections as a human and, you know, whether or not this is an appropriate goal for them just based on who they are, not based on what we think of their profile and what might make them seem like they can conform in a school environment. There are so many examples I could give. So did you actually reach out to your former clients and have a conversation with them? Yes, they were all. So I went from I kind of got moved up to the high school um, with some students and with some former students. Everyone was overjoyed, including myself, to be back with this group of students who I'm not with currently, but I'm still connected to them through creating a mentoring program, which I'm so excited about because I think mentoring is so important. But anyway, I reunited with a bunch of these students and you know, we were kind of going through what they wanted for their goals, you know, for that, for that school year, you know, what were their goals for themselves? What were, you know, what were some goals for themselves, you know, socially, if they had any academically, if they had any, you know, personally, if they had any, just to see what we could wrap into language there, just trying to, trying to make sure that they had a say in their goals. And at, through doing that, alongside them, I say, you know, when you were younger, there were certain things that I made you work on. I know better now not to work on those things. And, you know, I'm really sorry that I made you work on things like eye contact and, you know, the types of paralinguistic, like, you know, like facial mirroring things that we were told to do, you know, have someone's face mirror your facial expression, you know, when someone is expressing sadness, don't smile. I mean, These are things that I understand why someone told me that it would be good for me to tell people to do these things so that other people didn't react to them like their reactions were inappropriate. But the more important thing to teach people is, you know, people are not going to expect this, you know, they're going to expect you to look them in the eye. They're going to expect you to, you know, not be smiling if they're telling you a sad story. That doesn't matter. Their expectations don't matter. (laughs) What matters is whether or not you care about meeting those expectations. 
and whether or not that's something you want to work on or whether you don't care about it because you know it's not it's not top priority for you and you know when we're asking people to do those things we're really asking them to mask and that's unhealthy and it puts a tremendous psychological tax on people who already you know are probably experiencing the environment differently and we're asking them to go over and beyond and, and hide that that's happening and you know i i definitely apologize and my apologies were <laughs> It was amazing. I mean, this group of students was like, no, you really helped me. Like I, you know, I loved those sessions. Like that didn't matter to me, but for some people, it really feels like a form of conversion therapy. And, you know, I actually, who knows if I, I that group of people was very genuine and honest, but maybe they were just being nice to me. Um, you know, I know that I feel I shouldn't have worked on those things. And I'm glad that I was able to to make amends and then to sort of empower them to say like, and from this point forward, if you're being made to work on something that makes you uncomfortable, your role in advocating for yourself is the most important. You can say things like, I don't want to work on this. Like, this isn't important to me. I have other priorities. Can we please work on and sort of giving them the tools and the scripts to, to change things up if they found themselves in a situation where someone was pushing a goal on them that wasn't taking into account their, you know, a holistic picture of who they are. Well, that's great. I think by you telling that story, you know, that empowers other SLPs to, if they feel like they may have done something differently than they would do now, that having those conversations helps everyone. So that reminds me, I was watching a webinar today, kind of in, in preparation for our podcast, but one on um, speechtherapypd.com and another presenter presented, you're probably familiar with this, but I just thought I would would share it, a quote from Maya Angelou, um, because I think it's helpful when we're thinking of, you know, maybe we were not the perfect clinician in the past, but we're continuing to try. So do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So there you go. One, one of our one favorites. Of favorites. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Let's talk about, so we've, we've talked a little bit about oh, Someone, uh, we have a comment. You just expressed what was on my mind. Yes, it all depends on whether one wants to target a certain goal, but when they are young, they may not really know. In some cases, parents may step in with their preferences for their child. Oh, those are fun conversations that I have with parents quite often. And, you know, parents, I tend to have very good parent relationships because I invest a lot of time into them. You know, parents quite often want their kids to conform. This happens with gender. It happens with neurotype. And I'm sure that it happens across other forms of there's other forms of ableism that that occurs with that. I, you know, especially, I mean, deaf and hard of hearing kids. I mean, all of the parents who want their kids to not have access to sign language because they fear it'll, you know, impede the development of spoken language without ever having cracked open a book about it, you know, but that's. These are things that parents want for their kids. They want them to seem, and I, I hate this term, they want them to seem, quote, normal. That's a horrible term because none of us are that. And, you know, we all are individuals and we're all unique and we all have, you know, incredible things to offer the world from our own perspectives. And very often parents will sort of, you know, sneak in and they'll want their child to modify their behavior, their communication style or something about how they are, you know, it happens with kids with gender all the time to fit what they think, you know, will will get the least amount of attention from the outside world that people will be 
the least likely to notice um, that there's something, you know, quote, different about their kid, you know, instead of being proud that their kid is awesome. Very challenging to have these conversations with parents who really, I mean, without breaking HIPAA, I have over the years had a lot of parents request that I attempt to increase their child's processing speed, decrease delay. So, you know, you can't do that. Someone's processing speed is what it is. You can give them tools to say things like, you know, I'm thinking when they notice that they're taking a long time to respond or when they notice that they haven't answered a question, but they know that the question exists and they plan to, they just haven't gotten to it yet. But you can't get someone to respond more quickly. And I've had parents try and give me a window of like, I want my child to respond in 10 seconds or less. Those conversations are really hard because you know why? I know it's hard to wait. I understand that sometimes communication is pressing, but if your child can't give you a quality answer and it takes them longer than 10 seconds to come up with a response, then you have to allow that to happen. Like there's no, you can't put a, a time on someone on someone's response you have to allow them to formulate in their own time um and that that is a is a more common request than than i ever would have anticipated because it's one that's been consistent throughout the years you know there have been things that have sort of ebbed and flowed about you know what parents kind of want to see in their kids and you know different forms of acceptance have come about over the years but processing speed is something that parents universally don't understand and kind of want their child's processing speed to be like laser fast. And that's just not how it is. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their language um, or their ability to use language. Um, well, actually it has a lot to do with their language, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have to do with the quality of interaction that they have. It's just going to be a slower interaction and people just need to develop some patience around having that slower interaction and having these types of conversations with parents. It can be hard. They will push back and they'll, you know, say things like, you know, my ABA technician has this child answering questions, you know, in four seconds. And I'm like, well, are they genuine responses or are they trained responses? You know, I like, there's a lot to say about, you know, our different disciplines and what I view to be, you know, genuine language formulation and what a response might look like. And, you know, I always try and talk to parents about fostering most rich language development environment for their kid, which oftentimes involves waiting. You know, if you just want a quick response, you're probably not going to get the right response. You're going to get the fast response. And then your child isn't going to spend the time bothering to think that what their thoughts are and that their actual response matters because all they're going to want to do is, is respond to the stimuli quickly because that's what they've been conditioned to do. There's a whole lot to think about there. It really is. And that goes across different communication styles, including fluency. The rush for people to answer can certainly be challenging, more challenging for someone who stutters. That's a very good point that you've made. All right. Well, we have a little while left and not well, more than a little while. We have um, technically 13 minutes, but we'll go over a little bit. So I want to remind everyone that you are welcome and encouraged to ask questions and you can put those in the chat. I will ask them for you. So please do so. Can you tell us how long have you worked specifically in cultural responsiveness? Since like 2014, I've been lecturing 
I've been giving lectures to like hospitals, schools, um, you know, and universities for, I guess, almost a decade. Maybe it's been about eight years, but I really, you know, kind of took off with this in 2018. I wrote a couple of articles and was, you know, started making the rounds and live lecturing. And then, you know, 2019 came and went with the live lectures. And then I became a, a Zoom cultural responsiveness trainer. But it's actually been really wonderful because I've been able to access so many more people with Zoom as a platform and create so much more content, you know, just have a lot of asynchronous courses. So yeah, I've been doing this for, for a while and I have seen so much growth in our field and I really am impressed. You know, another reason why I came up with the Credits Institute is that I really am impressed with increased amount of DEI initiatives I'm seeing at universities, but we aren't seeing an increase in diversity in our field. And I really believe that it's because people who are the gatekeepers in our field require training. People who are, I mean, everyone requires training. You know, it, it should be a requirement just in graduate school that, you know, intersectional cultural responsiveness is taught because it has to be, but that's not a requirement. And I think that it's because the people, you know, up at the top haven't necessarily ever engaged in this and they don't understand what it is. And I think that it's nebulous and it scares them because it's like, well, what do I have to do? I have to examine my, you know, my biases and I have to engage in learning. I mean, yeah, but it's actually really fun. Um, and, you know, it gets you to think about the way that you view the world and the way that others view the world. And it makes you a better speech therapist because understanding someone's lived experience, I mean, you could be trained in, in every approach, you know, you can be, um, you know, well, you've got Orton Gillingham and you've got, you know, Lips and you've got Wilson training and you're going to help this kid learn to read, but then you get to, you know, the kid's house and you are racially microaggressive and that kid's not going to trust you as a clinician. And that, you know, that working alliance is not going to, is not going to get you as far and you're not going to have the ease with which you would have sort of that clinical or like teacher student relationship. Those missteps didn't happen. Or if you knew how to deal with them when they did occur, or if you recognize that if you learned how to recognize when they occurred and take a step back and say, you know, I'm sorry, like. I say something that, you know, upset you, could you, could you teach me? Like, I, I don't, I don't know too much about your culture. I don't know too much about whatever it is that, you know, that was said. And that way the person sort of sees that as an in of like, this person wants to learn about me. I can learn from them, you know, making sure that everyone who you interact with knows that it's a two-way learning street um, is also a really important element of this, you know, when I'm teaching um, these courses in cultural responsiveness, I do find myself learning so much. I mean, that's one of the things that I get out of it is, you know, I get to have lifelong learning for myself, which is something that I'm so, you know, jazzed about and I love. But what I what I get to do is sort of model for people how to engage in this learning by saying things like, I never knew this line of thinking was, you know, I don't I feel like I, there's something I learned recently. Oh my goodness. You know how history is always taught from the colonizer's perspective and never mm -hmm. from the native perspective. Um, there was, I was on some guided tour with my business partner this summer. Um, my transplanting business partner is the first time we met. We were on a guided tour 
um, in a inside of a cave that is the world's largest known geode. Um, this was our business retreat. And they were telling us the history of the cave. And it was all about a part of the, oh my gosh, I don't even remember what the war of 1812 possibly. Um, I don't remember um, the exact, the exact story because as it was being told to me, you know, it was unfolding that, you know, 1812 was the year that that island was colonized. It wasn't the year that they were saying it was with like, you know, the people here, you know, they, they helped the, they helped the soldiers by, you know, giving them access to the island and giving them fresh water because the lake water was making them sick. I mean, I was hearing one thing, but I was seeing another and, you know, I was hearing, well, 1812 is the, the year that this island was colonized. Um, and I was seeing, you know, um, monuments to all of the colonizers. And I was, you know, seeing um, remnants of the colonizers and not of the native people and not of the indigenous people who occupied that. You know, it was like, oh, they helped. They helped these people colonize this island. That's what they did. And now, you know, thankfully, this island in the middle of Lake Erie is not part of Canada. Like as if, you know, that would really matter. You know, the indigenous people who were on there are the people who mattered. And, you know, it was very interesting to kind of take that into perspective. And that has nothing to do with speech pathology. But when you carry this type of learning around with you, you do carry it everywhere across settings. And it is great because it it allows you to see materials that you use in your therapy room as culturally insensitive. There are so many culturally insensitive therapy materials. It's unbelievable the things that you still see in classrooms around Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving was a celebration of a massacre. And, you know, you see people with the pilgrim hat. Did you know that pilgrims didn't even wear hats, that they were rebranded like a hundred years later so that they looked not know more, that. they looked more church-like and like members of clergy, they actually wore um, really colorful um, garb. They were more like Vikings when you like think about actual depictions of Vikings. Um, and they did not wear those belt buckles. Um, you know, there, there's so much to learn about so many different things. Um, and I see a question in the chat, so I'll let you read it. Thank you so much for this presentation. I am so invested in cultural responsiveness on so many levels from upbringing and life experiences. A dad who suffered a massive stroke when I was 11, then as a mom having a child diagnosed with cancer and now living life, thriving in life as an amputee, life without limitations. So entering my 39th year as an SLP, I am on the DEI committee in my elementary school and our district seems to be focusing on cultural diversity, but not yet this important topic. How do I begin to introduce this? So they're focusing on cultural diversity, but not cultural responsiveness. But maybe not gender. Is that what maybe you're saying? Maybe not gender. And the person who wrote this question, if you want to clarify a little bit in the chat. Um, oh, yes. Not on gender. Thank you. Um, if you wanted to go to um, my website that courses.transplaining.info and, you know, if you're in an elementary school, I have an elementary school sort of um, learning package. If you wanted to bring that up, I give live trainings to schools. Um, you know, you could say... I, what I'll do is I'll sort of give an asynchronous training so that people can watch it in their own time and then come for a half hour sort of 
Q&A. A lot of people will, I'll, I'll work within anyone's price range. This is important work. And I'm just very grateful that people are willing to do it. What I, um, what I'll do is I'll send sort of, I'll send a lecture ahead of me um, so that people can all get a code and then they watch it. They take a quiz, they get a certificate, you know, you're, you're here on a platform, you know exactly how it works. And then they get to actually interact with me and ask their questions after they've digested the material, which I think is really important because sometimes people, you listen to these lessons and you're like, oh my gosh, I never have thought about this. And then it takes a few days and you're like, okay, now I have questions. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of give people that space to sit with the material. Um, so I'd be more than happy to, to talk to you um, further about that if you wanted to contact me. Mary Beth has my info. That's really nice of you, AC, for offering that. So there may be some other listeners who would like to take you up on that as well. So much appreciated. From your own experience and the person who wrote that, if you want to guess as to why that might be, why do you think a school district in 2022 is willing to invest in cultural diversity, equity, inclusion, but not gender. You know, it's funny is that if I don't know what that person will say, but I will tell you that very much people will say things like that's too political. You know, to that, I say you have the privilege of calling it political. I'm a person who has to live my life as, you know, a transgender person, like to me, it's not political. Like you can call it political and distance yourself from it. For me, it's personal. And, you know, the like they'll say things like, well, we're, you know, we're in a conservative area. People like me live in conservative areas. I mean, like I can't help being intersex. And let me tell you, that confuses everyone. Um, you know, I can't help being anything that I am, but I can choose where I live. And, <laughs> You know, that, but not everyone has that privilege. And, you know, people will say things like, well, we're from a conservative area or like, you know, we don't need to ask pronouns here. This is a Christian school. And I'm like, Christian people can't look not like your, you know, assumption of what their gender is based on their sex assigned at birth. Like what, like, you know, yes, they can, you know, people just are, they're, they're kind of unwilling to entertain the idea or they think like, well, this is an elementary school. That's not appropriate. There's nothing about talking about gender that's inappropriate. I mean, I think that people very oftentimes conflate gender and sexuality. Um, they also don't realize that, um, you know, students have parents and families and lives, and they've been exposed to gender diversity. They're part of gender diversity. All gender is diverse. Hey, Mary Beth, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but your gender is not the same as someone else who also presents as female and was assigned female at birth. Like you have your own, like your gender expression is your very own gender expression. Hmm. You're like the way that you experience and express your gender is, is unique to you. It's not the same experience as everyone else who was assigned whatever sex you were assigned at birth, who has whatever gender you have or who shares your pronouns you know everyone's gender experience is unique you know you might there might be certain constructs that you buy into that you you know you like looking a certain way you like presenting in a certain way you like to be read as a certain you know um type of person of your gender presentation but 
somebody else who uses she, her pronouns, um, who was also, you know, um, assigned female at birth might have a completely different gender presentation from you and a completely different, you know, way of experiencing, you know, femininity um, or even lack thereof within their, you know, there's gender diversity within cisgender female populations that nobody cares to to acknowledge or, or think about. There's gender diversity within, you know, everyone who is, you know, a cisgender male populations, you know, gender diversity isn't just trans people or gender nonconforming people. Everyone's gender is different from everyone's gender. I can definitely list my um, addresses, my um, websites in the chat. Um, I will do that. But, you know, everyone's gender is is different. Um, and to, while to you're responding your, to that. Yes, I will respond to that. And to answer your question, I actually did not think about this until today. So as I said, I was reviewing another webinar on speechtherapypd.com and this came up and I thought, wow, that is so true. You know, there are some people who identify with my gender who present a extremely feminine presentation. And please, AC, correct me if I'm saying this offensively. There are others who are more middle of the road in their gender presentation, and they then they both um, equally identify within the same gender. Let's pretend that there was someone, you know, nobody knows what you look like because we're on a Zoom call. Um, <laughs> But like, you don't strike me as someone who's particularly butch. You strike me as, you know, if we're looking at a gender spectrum, which is not a continuum that starts at really manly man and ends at really feminine woman, a spectrum is, you know, a a big, you know, sort of broad, you know, array where you can kind of pick and choose different, different characteristics. You strike me as someone who is, you know, more feminine than, than, you know, than butch presenting. But we could have a cisgender, you know, butch woman right next to you. And you could both say, you know, oh, yes, you know, I'm a cisgender woman. But your gender differences would be pretty vast or could be. Um, And nobody, nobody knows. You can't know everyone's sort of understanding or perception of their own gender unless you actually talk about it. And I find that cisgender people, you know, they think that they it's well, I'm going to. I don't want to sound rude because I'm not trying to be rude, but cisgender people, because they've never thought about gender, oftentimes presume that they know everything about gender, you know, like, oh, well, I was born, I was assigned female at birth. I feel comfortable shopping in a woman's section of a clothing store, being called this, being called someone's wife, you know, taking on household roles. If you, if that's, you know, where, what your jam is, you know, I'm not saying that this is how it should be. I trust me, I'm not, I'm just saying, you know, someone who's, who's never thought about gender might have a profile like that. And then they think, you know, well, what is all of this gender stuff like this? This is wacky, you know, like, I don't have to think about this. Therefore, you know, I don't have it. Therefore, you know, it's for everyone else without sort of ever, you know, having the consideration that, you know, there's a lot of constructs that you don't have to buy into, you know, the reason why people have thought about them so much is because they feel uncomfortable with them. And it's those of us who feel uncomfortable with them who've done the most learning about what gender is and you know how people experience it and for some reason that line of learning can sometimes make cisgender people feel uncomfortable um, because they've never actually examined their own genders but like 
there's nothing weird about examining your gender. Like you think about it, like, you know, is how do I express my gender? How do I experience my gender? You know, how, you know, how does this differ from, you know, any of my friends and their experiences of their gender. Really, you know, thinking about the diversity within cisgender people is a lot of an easier starting point when you're talking about gender diversity than even then, you know, sort of introducing trans and gender non-conforming people. But, you know, we really do exist um, everywhere. Being intersex is, is as common as having red hair. And people just do not think about how that is completely erased from, you know, everything that we learn about um, biological, I'm using in air quotes, um, sex, because biological sex is actually a spectrum. Biological sex and gender, you know, our gender our gender assumed at birth is just a set of expectations based on the out external appearance of our infant body, which is how we get our sex assigned at birth. And that has no regard for like our chromosomal makeup, our hormonal makeup, or any of our sort of personal autonomy. Very often people don't find out that they're intersex until later in life, like me. <laughs> this, is, this, is, it is, this is like a terrible way to end something, but intersex erasure is so terrible. I mean, they perform surgeries on babies just so that their infant bodies conform to binary notions so that parents don't have to deal with the fact that their baby looks different in a place that nobody's looking. It's terrible. And we have all of this diversity that we could be celebrating, but instead we're categorizing it and forcing it into categories like the way SLPs like to teach pronouns um, when we could just be doing so much better as humans and embracing diversity and making sure that our language evolves in order to reflect the fact that we're growing and learning more about this diversity. And I am just so grateful that you've had me on here to sort of start this conversation because there's so much more to say. Well, I am so grateful that you agreed to um, come and talk with us today and you have made your course available to um, everyone who wants to learn more. Speaking of learning more, I would love to have you on again sometime and to explore some of these topics in more depth. And thank you for sharing your personal stories. I know that is not easy. And I think it really um, helped me understand. And I hope it helped our listeners as well. And we have some people in the chat saying thank you and bravo. So we greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do want to say one more thing before you all go. <laughs> Is that okay, <laughs> Please do. Beth? Oh, yes, um, yes. <laughs> a good friend and prominent speech-language pathologist, a good friend of mine um, and prominent speech-language pathologist was recently the target of an ethics complaint that Asha... Unfortunately, doesn't have the choice. They have to investigate every ethics complaint that comes their way, but there really should kind of be a screening process because this one was really rooted in anti-Blackness and anti-Black racism. And it was very unfair to Dr. Yanessa Humbert. Um, so if you were here tonight and you weren't watching Instagram live with Dr. Yanessa Humbert and um, Jordan Carroll, um, who's JRC, the SLP, I would highly recommend that after this, you pop on Instagram like I'm going to do and you watch what they have to say about that because there is a lot of anti-blackness 
everywhere in our society, but it's very prominent um, in SLP communities. And, you know, this is bringing to light that topic. And I am very committed to decreasing anti-Black racism in our field. And I think that there's a learning opportunity that's occurring right now, coinciding with this, that I would love to point you all in that direction because we all need to be engaged so much in that learning as well. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and trying to to move forward. And some of these conversations are hard to have, but we need to have them. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.